Well, for those of you that are just joining us, uh, we have in the fall been going through Genesis. Last fall, what I did was uh, we walked through Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And then the goal is in every fall, we keep on coming back to Genesis until we we tackle the whole book. And so this fall is going to be Genesis chapter uh, 4 through 11. And what we're going to find mostly in the story of uh, 4 through 11, right? We saw Cain and Abel in chapter 4. We see uh, we saw uh, uh, genealogy in chapter 5. Then we see Noah. Really, that's going to be the story that dominates the section. The narrative is going to be Noah and the ark. Now, I don't know what you know about Noah, but you may not know a lot about the Bible. What I find often, actually, even people that don't know much about the Bible, they know a little something about Noah. They may not know much about Noah. There was that movie that was, I, I didn't even see it, but everyone I talked to they goes, did you see the movie Noah? I'm like, no. And as they talk about it, I think to myself, I think I'm glad I didn't see that movie. And I'm not like, there, there's not been uh, really sort of any good recommendations yet for it. So, uh, but, but everybody kind of knows the story, a little bit about it. And so you may be at least familiar with it. Maybe you're unfamiliar with it. But we know like sometimes the general ideas of it, right? Like, there's a guy named Noah. That's, I, I know there was a guy named Noah. And for whatever reason, he, lo- he looks oddly familiar to Moses always. I don't know why that is, but it's always like there's, there's Noah and there's Moses. And I'm not really sure why they always look alike, but they do. When I was a kid, we had a flannel graph. They, like Noah and Moses were the same. That's, like, that's the same guy. Noah's back. Like, no, it's not Noah. This is Moses. Like, oh, whatever. We know that there is an ark, right? That's how we probably, even most of you maybe even know what an ark is, is because of the story of Noah and the ark. We go, oh, it's an, it's, it's an ark. It's a big boat. And maybe you'd be familiar with the fact that there's animals that go into that ark. Right? They came, and you might even know they came two by two. They came two by two. And so when we have these stories, they're really well known. One of my questions to me, to, to the Bible, and to, I was like, why? Why? Like, what's the story doing? Why is the story in the Bible? In fact, anytime you read anything in the Bible, you can always ask yourself the question, why is this here? And lots of things were really cool. Lots of things happened. But my question is, why is this story here in this place? I mean, even when you read, like, the Gospel of John, it says at the end of the Gospel of John, there's lots of other stories about Jesus. These were not all of them. And so then my question was, if there's other stories, then why are these the ones included? Like, it's doing something. And I think there's these stories, but I think there's a grander story, right? We go Genesis to Revelation. We call it the, the grand narrative. And as we talk about narratives like Noah, there there is a grander narrative that's happening. And my question is, what's it doing in there? Like, why did God put this story in there? Did he put the story in there because we needed something to teach the children on Sunday mornings, right? It was a good story. Why is the story of Noah there? What's it doing? How is it moving the narrative forward? Is it there because God thought to himself, you know, Thousands of years from now, thousands of miles from this place, people are going to need some good ideas about how to decorate a nursery. And so we should probably include a story of a boat and some animals because won't those look cute on the walls? 
Is that why this is here? And we've been looking at this. Genesis 1 and 3, Adam and Eve in the fall. God told Adam and Eve, the day you eat of the tree, the fruit of good and evil, your day, you're, you're going to die. And they did, and their eyes were opened. And they were kicked out of the garden. Then Cain and Abel came along. Adam and Eve gave birth to Cain and Abel, and Cain killed Abel. It says, rose up and killed Abel. Talk about what, what, what Eve didn't know, what Eve didn't know, uh, Adam and Eve didn't know in Genesis 3 was that what you're going to do here is going to set into motion the one day your, your older son is going to kill your younger son. You're going to lose two sons. One's going to be murdered by the hands of the other. And we saw in Genesis 5, then there was this downwardness of the spiral. Things are getting worse and worse and worse and worse until we got to Genesis chapter 6, which is what we looked at last week. And last week we talked about the, the, the big difference between Christianity and probably our culture right now, our humanism, is that humanism believes at our core we're really good people, that humanity's really good at its core. And given enough time and enough freedom, right, to carry that out, is that we will become better and better as a people. And Christianity comes along and says, actually, what we believe, because of what we think the scriptures teach us, is that at our core we're not good. And unless something happens, if we're given enough time and enough freedom, things will get worse and worse. And by the way, that's the story of Genesis 5. That's the story of Genesis 6. That's our story today. Worse and worse. And so when Genesis 6 opened up, what we see is that they're, they're getting married and they're having babies. Which is actually what God told them to do. Except for things are getting worse and worse. And two things that were meant to be a blessing, marriage and children, both have become a curse. Why? Because that's what sin does. Sin takes that which is supposed to be a blessing. It corrupts it. And it becomes a curse. That's what we looked at last week. So what we do, we take the blessings of God because of the sin, we corrupt them, then they become a curse. And what we found out is that what this what actually Jesus does, what Jesus does is he comes and he takes the curse and turns it back to blessing. And so, so we see this downward spiral of sin and corruption and things are just getting worse and worse until God moves. And that's what we see in Genesis chapter 6. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me. We're going to start in chapter 6, verse 9 this morning. And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a, was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. And now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh, was, all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Let me read that again, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And so what we see is in Genesis 6, we said there was this, things were getting worse and worse, 
Actually, Genesis 6, 9, and 11, 10, 10, 10, 11, 12 actually tells us what that worse and worse looks like. It goes, what's happening is actually violence and corruption is increasing. Now, imagine with me, if you will, this is going to be difficult, but to think about a world full of violence and corruption, what would that look like? <laughs> what would that feel like? Oh, Josh, I can't imagine that. I know, it's hard, isn't it? No. Why? Full of violence and corruption. You look at everything right now. All you hear is violence, corruption, violence, corruption. And so we see this in Genesis chapter 6. world is, is full of violence and corruption. We go, yeah, actually, here's the problem is, is I know that world. We live in, in that world. And yet, we have this idea that it should be, it should be different. You ever think about that? Like, why do we all have this general sense? By the way, this is Christian and non-Christian. Why do we all have this general sense that we have this belief that the world is corrupt and full of violence, but that it shouldn't actually be that way? Because they go, based on what experience? The only experience that we've ever had is one full of, of, of violence and corruption. And you look at history, what do you see? Lots of violence, lots of corruption. You look at today, what do you see? A lot of violence, a lot of corruption. And yet inside of us, we have this sense it should be different. It must be different. It's got to be different, right? We live in a world right now where, where, where we base everything that we believe on our experiences. Oh, if I didn't experience it, it's not real. If I didn't experience it, it's not real. And unless I can experience it, then I'll be skeptical. But yet, we actually have this belief that, we all, that the world should be something that none of us have experienced. Violence and corruption. And everyone's always surprised. I don't know why. You read our headlines. <gasps> Corruption, can you believe it? Yeah, actually, I, I, I kind of can. Yeah, because that's kind of the way that it goes. Corruption. Wait for it, wait for it. Politicians are corrupt. What? Government. There's corruption in government. What? Even our legal system. Corporations. <gasps> They're corrupt too. Yeah. Why are we surprised? Violence strikes. We're outraged. I mean, actually, you don't even hear, hear this when, when there's some sort of like, uh, like mass violence. They go, you'll hear people say, we're tired of reporting on this. We're tired of bringing you this story. We're tired of this headline. I go, yeah, 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 me too. But I don't know why you're surprised. They'll say something like, another, another act of senseless violence. And I go, well, here's, here's the thing. Actually, that, that, kind of, that phrase bothers me a little bit. Here's the thing, is that it's not senseless. It's evil, for sure. Wicked, yep. Maybe even unimaginable. But it's not senseless. It's not senseless in, 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 the, in, the, 
in regards to it lacks meaning. I go, it's got lots of meaning. We just don't like what it says. And what it says is that we are a world that is corrupt and full of violence. And then God looks down and he goes, what he sees? I see a world full of corruption and a world full of violence. And what I love actually, if you look back at this, verse 11, look at this, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in what? In God's sight. I thought to myself as I prepared for this message this week, I go, I wonder what the people thought. Did the people reflect on themselves and go, you know what, we're corrupt and violent. Did the people reflect and go, actually, we're actually pretty good. We're doing all right. We could be better. Not firing on all cylinders. I think to myself, we don't know what the people thought. And at some level, it doesn't matter what they thought. Because if they, were, if, if, if they were upright in their own eyes, it didn't matter. Because in God's eyes, they were corrupt and violent. And it's funny because right now we also live in a world where how you see yourself is the most important thing about you. I go, it's not the most important thing about you. I mean, sure, it's important about how you see yourself, but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is what does God think when he sees you? It's not even good that we would be a culture that's right in our own eyes. The question is, what does God think when he sees us? And what it says here is that when he saw the world full of, full of corruption and violence, the flood wasn't a vote. God didn't give them options. The flood was, was God's judgment. And what we see here as we see that Noah is blameless. The world is corrupt. Noah is upright. The world is full of unrighteousness. Noah is righteous. The world is full of blame. Noah is blameless. And I go, isn't this the big question that we all have? How do we be faithful in the middle of unfaithfulness? How can we act righteously in the middle of unrighteousness? And when I talk with people, this is the thing that is actually plagues us the most. Josh, all of these things are being said about me. How do I respond? All these people are lying about me. What do I do? Do I get to lie about them too? They get to act unfaithfully to me. How do I act towards them? I go, those are the, that's, that's the struggle of faith. I mean, sometimes we have the other side, which is like, what's going on? Like, well, people have been honest to me. I have a hard time lying to them. That I means sometimes we have that, those are our issues. But that's not the one that plagues us at night, is it? The one that plagues us, that keeps us up at night, is how do I act righteously in the middle of unrighteousness? How do I act faithfully in the middle of unfaithfulness? That's, that's the question. And what do I do? And where we see this is we see this with Noah. Middle of corruption, middle of violence, we get one, Noah, who is blameless before the Lord. It goes on, verse 13. And God said to Noah, 
I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through him. Through, sorry, through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the, of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a, a, a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. And so God, in his desire to answer the corruption and violence of humanity, what he says is, he says, I'm going to bring an end to it all. Now, we may not like how he ends it all, right? Here's the interesting thing. We, we say, God, would you end the violence? Would you end the corruption? And God says, I got a plan to end said violence and corruption. And we go, oh, we don't like that plan. And we may even read the, the Bible, even like stories like this in the Bible, we go, but how could a God, good God do that? I mean, why would God do that? Which I think is, it, it, it's a good question, but there's a big problem with the question sometimes, I think is what we do. I once had a seminary prof, he says, never place yourself in moral superiority to God. Never look at the actions of God and think, God, you should have been more gracious. God, you should have been more merciful. God, you should have been more patient. Because in, in a sense, what we're saying is like, God, God, like, if, well, if I was God, I would have been more merciful in this situation. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so then what we're really saying is, God, you should be more patient like me. <laughs> you should be more merciful like me. You should be more gracious like I would be gracious. And what we do is we go, God, we're, we're going we're to put ourselves in a place of moral superiority over you. So we read these stories like, God, and my, my guess is if we were in this, I don't know, but we would have thought like, God, what took so long? God is not more patient. Sorry, God is more patient than you. He is more gracious than you. He's more merciful than you. And so we, we see this here. So he says, I'm going to bring this, I'm going to bring this destruction, this judgment on the earth. And Noah, but what I want you to do is I want you to build an ark. And this is probably the reason why we even know what an ark is, right? It's Noah and the ark. Think about this. If you're going to be famous in the Bible, you have to have an and, like, right? You know, like uh, Noah and the ark, Jonah and the whale, Daniel and the lion's den, right? So you have these sorts of things, Moses and the burning bush. So you've got these sorts of things. You're more likely to be remembered. So Noah and the ark. And so we see this, and he says, I want you to make it 300 cubits by, by, by 50 cubits by 30 cubits. And the big question is, right, what's well, a cubit? And a cubit really is, this is from the elbow to the fingertips right there. So about 15 to 18 inches. And so you go, well, that's kind of vague a little bit. You go, yeah, this is, well, it's good. That's why it's good we have tape measures to go, yeah. So this is, we all know what we're talking about when we say a foot. Because 15 to 18, it can be a little subjective, right? So if you go to the marketplace, you're trying to buy a cubit of 
of, of fabric. You go, I want his cubit, not your cubit of fabric, because I want the extra three inches. But this would be about 15 to 18 inches. So they put about the arc by about 400 feet, 450 feet long. And so, so we see the, the cubit. And what we see is that this idea of an arc. Now, do you know that this isn't the only place where we see an arc? Or the word used for arc. Actually, the word for the, we see used for arc is actually used in two places. It's in Genesis, mostly here. It's all, basically all here referring to Noah and the ark. And we find it in another place. And I know what you may be thinking to yourself. Oh, yeah, it's like the Ark of the Covenant. And you go, no, that's not. That's a different ark. It's a different word. The other place that we find this word for an ark, we find in Exodus. Moses, who we understand, I understand, to, to have written and recorded Genesis, also writ, wrote and recorded Exodus. And he's going to tell his own story. And in his story, what we see in, in, in Exodus is we see the story of Moses. Verse 2. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months because they were killing all the Jewish male boys. The babies. And so, so to see that he wasn't killed, she, she came up with a plan. Verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. The word that we see here for basket is actually the word ark. And so really what God told Moses to do is like, I want you to build a big basket. <laughs> build a big basket. And as Moses is writing the story and recording the story, I think that Moses at some level sees himself in the story. No, why? Because God is a thematic God. And so where, 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 Noah, where, God's, where, sorry, where Moses says, God put Noah into a big old basket and put him on the waters that brought salvation to the people, Right? Pitched with what? You know, pitched with the, with the tar, with the, with the pitch, uh, lined with pitch. He goes, God did that before, and he's done that again. Moses is saying, he did that with me. He put me in a big basket. Set me out on the water. And what will Moses do? Bring salvation to the people. And so we see what happening in Genesis 6. Moses very much is seeing his story in Genesis chapter, sorry, in Exodus chapter 2, in the same light. And so we see this. God says, I want you to build a big boat. I'm going to destroy the world. This is what God says. I'm going to, there's violence and corruption. I'm going to destroy the world. And I want you to build a boat. And I want it to be 300 cubits by 50 cubits by 30 cubits. And I'm going to destroy everything that breathes. And what's crazy is that our question when that happens, God says, God says, I'm going to destroy everything, build a big boat, 300 cubits by 50 cubits by 30 cubits. I'm going to destroy everything. Then our big question is, what's a cubit, I wonder? Huh, I wonder what, I, God just said, I'm going to destroy everything. Build a big boat, 300, what's, okay, but, but my big question is not about you destroying everything. My big question is, what's a cubit? Ah, uh, maybe speaks a little bit of our callousness of the story. Right? These are real people. Real violence. 
being suffered, real corruption being carried out. Then in verse 18, verse 18 says, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And I love this. Because listen to what he just said. Violence, corruption, I'm going to destroy everything except for you, Noah, and your family. I'm going to save you. I'm going to make a covenant with you. And so one of the beautiful things we see here in Genesis chapter 6 is that God extends grace. Grace is given before judgment is enacted. We go, isn't that beautiful? The grace would be given before judgment is enacted. Isn't that a great theme of the Bible, that grace is given before judgment is enacted? You go, yeah, and we get only six chapters in and we see an example of it, that grace is extended. Grace is given before judgment is enacted. Well, how beautiful is that? I go, but here's the crazy thing. Yes, we see it six chapters in, but this isn't the first time we've seen it. It's at least the third time we've seen it. Right? Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree. Of the day that you do, your eyes will be open. You're going to die. They eat of the fruit. They realize they're naked. God's going to give consequences and kick them out of the garden. But do you know what he does before he does that? He promises them salvation. Before I'm going to enact my judgment, I promise you salvation. And I'm going to clothe you. Cain raises up and kills Abel. God says, you're going to be a wanderer now. You're going to wander everywhere. Cain's big complaint was, if I do that, they're going to kill me. God says, they're not going to kill you because I'm going to put a mark on you so that no one will kill you. God gives the grace, extends the grace before he enacts the judgment. And so we should not be surprised when Jesus shows up who's going to not only give the judgment, but take the judgment of God. And before that happens, he says, I'm I'm offering you grace. The grace is extended before the judgment is enacted. It's a great theme of the Bible. And we see it in Adam and Eve. We see it with Cain and Abel. And we see it with Noah. Judgment is coming, Adam. Sorry, judgment is coming, Noah. But I'm, I'm offering you grace. I'm going to save you. And so we see this extended to Noah. We see this extended to Noah's family. By the way, it doesn't say that Noah's family is righteous. And we're going to get to that later. Not today, but another sermon. But, this, but it doesn't say that Noah's family is righteous. It says that Noah was righteous. Some of you may know what that feels like. Family's not righteous, but I'm doing my best. It goes on in verse 19. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds of every, every creeping thing according, sorry, thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come unto you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten. Store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And so not only is this the 
the, the bringing of all of the animals of the earth, but it's also a food that's going to feed them for the days of the flood. So it's a lot of food. A lot of animals. And what's interesting here is that, that God, like God says, like, because we want, we want, you know, we want God to answer the questions of like, well, how long did it take? Like, you know, I don't know how long it took. My guess is it's a big old boat. They didn't have a lot of machinery back then. I'm not sure how much help he had. Might take a while. He lived a long while. I don't know, maybe 100 years, 200 years. Who knows? Could have been 120 years. I don't know. But when the boat is, when the, the ark is built, God's the one that brings the animals. He's the one that brings the life and brings them into the ark. Lots of questions we have. We don't know all the answers. Did the dinosaurs not make it? I don't know what happened there. I don't. I wish I could answer those questions. I can't. Genesis doesn't. Is that where things got extinct? I I, I don't know. I don't know. What I know is... That when God saw the violence of the corruption of the world, he was grieved, he was angered, his anger moved him towards judgment to bring to an end the violence and corruption. And within that judgment, we see salvation. That's what I know. And so then it goes on then, and probably one of my favorite verses of this section, which is 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah did this. He did that all that God commanded him. And so when we think about how do we be faithful people in the midst of unfaithfulness? How do we pursue righteousness in the middle of our unrighteousness? How do we walk uprightly in the middle of corruption? And I go, well, we look at Noah. Noah, that's what Noah did. And so we can learn something from Noah. We can learn something from Noah, right? And in order to learn something from Noah, I, just, just take note of what he said. If you want to learn something from Noah, just take note from what he said. Look back at chapter 6 and just take note of what he said. To which you may say, he didn't say anything. And go, Yeah, he said nothing. You look at Genesis chapter 6, God's doing everything. God's the one who is seeing. He saw everything and God is the one that's saying everything. He's the one who sees everything and says everything. Noah, go do this. Noah, now build this. Noah, the people, the, the animals are going to come to you. This is what I want you to do with them. Noah, this, that. He's, God is the one doing everything. The only thing that Noah is doing, as we can find out here, is that Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. You go, what does it mean to be faithful in the middle of unfaithfulness? You do everything that God commands you to do. Now, here, I, I'm not saying that Noah was silent. I think that Noah, he was, not a, he was not a mute, right? I mean, he actually, I don't think so at least. I'm sure he had conversations with God. But I think it's just very interesting that in this story, we don't really even, we'll hear from Noah a little bit, but not a lot. I don't think he even speaks until chapter 9. This is why they were going to make a movie 
I was like, oh, how are they going to do that? I mean, there's like zero dialogue from about, no, we're gonna, you have to make up a bunch of stuff. He didn't talk until chapter 9. And what Noah does is Noah does what Noah does. All that God has commanded him to do. And so, in the middle of unfaithfulness, how do we be faithful? Well, I think one, what we see from the story this morning is that one, we're not surprised by it. I think that's step one. We're not surprised by it. So often we're just shocked. <gasps> again? Yeah, again. And probably again. If you live long enough, it's going to come again and again and again and again. Stop being shocked by it. But then the other thing is then, trust that God sees it. This is what Genesis 6 tells us, that God sees it. God is not shocked by it, and he's, not only does he see it, he sees it better than you. You never inform God anything in prayer. God, do you know what's going on down here? God, do you know what they just said? Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't say those things to God. I think it's helpful. I say those things to God, but a way of confirmation of, like, God, I see it too. Or maybe even a way of, like, saying, God, like, I, 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 I'm aware of this. But God sees it. He sees it more than you. He sees it clearer than you. God sees it. God sees the unfaithfulness, but he also sees the faithfulness. He sees the unrighteousness, but he also sees the righteousness. And so that God, so you don't have to be surprised by it, that God sees it. And then what we see here is that you trust when God speaks. It's this interesting thing where we think that when when we are in the midst of unfaithfulness, that all of a sudden it has justified us to be unfaithful to God. Like, why did you say that to that person? Well, because let me tell you what they said to me. Why did you cheat them out of money? Well, no, okay, 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 hold on. I didn't cheat them out of nothing. But you lied about that. Yeah, I lied about that, but that's only because I was taking back what was, what was taken from me in the first place. So their, their unfaithfulness justified your unfaithfulness. Their unrighteousness justified your unrighteousness. I'm confused. Is that, is that what we see in, in the stories of the Bible? No. No, we find that the, the faithful even when it becomes very hard, continue to be faithful. And by the way, faithfulness is very difficult. It's very costly, often. If faithfulness was easy and cheap, we'd have much more faithful people in this world, right? If faithfulness was cheap and easy for you, you would be more faithful. I would be more faithful. But our faith would always be cheap and easy. There's something that happens when our faith, when it becomes costly and difficult, is that our faith becomes more, like, worth a lot more to us. And so we shouldn't be surprised by it. We know that God sees it. And we trust in what he says. This is why when in the midst of unfaithfulness, I go, 
People want to go away from what God says. I go, no, it's the time to go towards what he says. You don't find refuge from his word. You find refuge in his word, right? You don't find refuge from his commandments. You aren't saved from his commandments. You are saved by his commandments. And so what we see is we see Noah remaining faithful in the places uh, with his obedience. And so Noah, the one who was faithful in the midst of unfaithfulness, righteous in the middle of unrighteousness, God calls him to that. But let me ask you a question. This is going to be an obvious answer, so it's kind of a trick question. But who, who benefited the most from Noah's faithfulness? Noah or God? Right? Who received the most benefits from the faithfulness of Noah? Noah, and we'll say Noah and his family, right? Noah and his family or God? I think the answer is obvious. That's why it's a trick question. Because you go, oh, the answer is obvious. It's, it's Noah. I mean, did God benefit some? Well, I mean, yeah, God benefited some, right? It's a great story. It's his covenant. He keeps it. He's a, he's a God who keeps his promises. But I would submit to you that Noah and his family benefited by far the most And the reason why I bring that up is because we feel like, and I don't know about you, I don't know about me, but I feel like when I'm faithful in the middle of unfaithfulness that somehow I'm doing God a favor. Like I'm doing him a solid. Like, God, did you see that back there? Did you see what they said to me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, God, and did you see how I responded? Yeah. You're welcome. You're welcome. Like, you don't, you know, just... I'm going to pray about some stuff later on. Just remember this moment and how, how awesome this was for you. Right? We feel like we did God the favor. We did this solid. Because why? Because we were faithful. Because I was faithful. I did God the favor. You go, well, I mean, God, I think, is pleased by that. But we don't feel like we are the ones who benefited the most by our faithfulness. In fact, often you feel like your, your faithfulness is benefiting everybody else but not you. And I say that's true of one person. And it's not you. It is by the faithfulness of Jesus that everyone else benefited. It was his righteousness that deemed you righteous. It was because of his faithfulness that you can be called faithful. This is why we don't do righteous acts to become righteous. But, but we are righteous because of what he has done and then we work out our righteousness. We work out our faithfulness. We're not faithful because we do faithful things. 
It's not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that we're, we, are, we, are, we are made faithful by Christ's faith and that, that our faith, our salvation is a working out of that. And then we are the ones that are benefiting the most from it. Sure, it's costly. Sure, it's difficult. But my, I think what we see in Moses and many other stories in the Bible is that, yes, faith is costly and faith is difficult, but it benefits you the most. And when your faith is cheap and it's easy, you are the one who suffers the most. God did not put Noah, have Noah do all of this because God needed saving. God did not come to Noah, said, Noah, build a big old boat, build a big old boat because I got to get in it too, my friend. No. God had Noah build a big old boat out of faith that God was going to use to save him. It's true of Noah. That's true of you. Your, your cheap and easy faith will bring you suffering with your own hands a lot of times. But your, your faith that is costly and difficult will bring to your benefit, although it may cause suffering. It may come through suffering. And so, to answer the question, how do we be faithful and righteous in the middle of unfaithfulness and, unrighte- and unrighteousness? We go, well, we do what Noah did in that sense. We trust in God. And we trust in Him and we trust in His way. We trust in His word. And we trust that in that, that in that, that he is the one who saves. Let's pray. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Noah. We thank you for the faithfulness of Noah. God, we thank you. God, maybe we even have been asking ourselves the question, how do we live as faithful in the middle of unfaithfulness? How do we live righteously in the middle of unrighteousness? God, may we find refuge in your promises. May we find refuge in your word. May our faithfulness to you, may we benefit from it. We may not always see it. We may not always understand it, but may we benefit from it. May our faithfulness to you even even save us from ourselves. May we live faithfully in the middle of unfaithfulness, whether we find the unfaithfulness in our workplace, our homes, our communities, our culture, our state, our world. May we live as faithful ones. We love you. We pray for these things in your name. Amen.